Welcome to episode 102 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we talked about some of the events and issues leading up to the 6th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. So now let's jump into talking about the Congress itself. Just as a refresher, the dates for the Congress were June 18th to July 11th, 1928, and it was being held on the outskirts of Moscow. The first two sessions of the Congress were taken up with a report that was delivered by the General Secretary of the Executive Committee of the Comintern, Nikolai Bukharin. The report was titled, On the International Situation and the Tasks of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, before we dive into the content of this report, just a couple of words about this. First, it is highly significant that the first speaker, and the one delivering the main report that kicked off the Congress, was from the Comintern Executive Committee and not from the Chinese Communist Party. This very clearly expressed the dynamic that was at play in the Congress overall, which was that of the elder brother Comintern slash Communist Party of the Soviet Union telling the younger brother Chinese Communist Party what the situation was and what the Chinese Party needed to do. And also that so far, in the Comintern's eyes, the Chinese communists had kind of not been doing a very good job, and maybe they wouldn't, or maybe they wouldn't be in this situation of overt tutelage. Zhang Guodao uh, relates the prevailing attitude in the Chinese Communist Party toward the Comintern at this time in the following passage from his memoir. Quote, the leaders of the young CCP lacked experience. So, obeying instructions of the Comintern was the proper obligation of these subordinates toward their superiors. We believed in the Comintern, acknowledging the fact that the old revolutionaries of the Comintern were more worldly wise than we were. Whenever our views differed with the directives of the Comintern, we invariably regarded ourselves as a group of pupils who dared not show any confidence in their own judgment. Consequently, we sacrificed our own convictions in order to accommodate the Comintern directives. We even looked upon any instruction given by the Comintern representative as holy writ, which had to be followed blindly. In brief, the situation had reached the level of superstitious faith in the Comintern, which was a sad fact. End quote. Now, on some level, there's going to be an ongoing elder brother, younger brother, or teacher and student dynamic between the Soviet and Chinese communist parties up until the Sino-Soviet split, which takes place during the late 1950s and early 1960s. But the level of subordination of the Chinese communists to Moscow is going to go through some ups and downs in that time frame, with a major change happening after Mao Zedong asserts a large degree of independence in the wake of the defeats that lead to the Long March in 1934. But even then, once Mao is the top leader, there will certainly be some level of deference to Moscow and certainly to the lessons to be learned from the Soviet experience, at least until the late 1950s. But that's getting ahead of ourselves here. So, aside from the significance of how it was Bukharin delivering this opening talk, this main political report to the 6th Congress, rather than Chu Chu Bai or one of the other major Chinese leaders, the other thing aside from the actual content of the talk that I want to draw attention to is the length of the talk. As I mentioned, this talk lasted for the first two sessions of the Congress. And we're not just talking about sitting for an hour, taking a pee break, and coming back for another hour. 
A lot of people who don't study the concrete experience of communist organizations are not necessarily aware that there's a major practice uh, pretty much across the whole history of international communism since 1917 and around the world of party congresses opening with what can only be described as very long speeches. We're talking about multi-session, multi-day affairs in some cases. Now, I can't say exactly how long this speech of Bukharin's took, uh, but we can make an educated guess. In 1970, the academic journal Chinese Studies in History printed an English translation of the speech. It took up one entire issue of the journal and part of the following issue, because it was too long to print in one issue. It was 89 pages total. And keep in mind, this speech would have been delivered in Russian with periodic pauses for translation into Mandarin. This took a long time to deliver. And like I said, this was not abnormal in terms of the practice of, it, of the international communist movement. And I have to say that as uh, someone who has, uh, like probably most people who teach, uh, attended workshops where we're taught that any lecturer over 20 minutes sees uh, massive drop-offs in audience attention and also endured many lectures about how bad lecturing is supposed to be compared to other ways in which people can absorb knowledge and make it their own. Um, I just find the whole, I say it and you absorb it and we don't get to do this very often and it's really important. So this is going to take a couple of days for me to tell you this uh, way of thinking about delivering knowledge about political line and strategy and tactics from a leadership figure to a room full of high and middle level cadres to, to be just a mind boggling thing. Of course, a, a room full of professional revolutionaries hearing summations of prior practice and guidance about revolutionary strategy in the current world situation is a very different audience than the audience that college professors have to work with. Uh, one assumes that the audience at Bukharin's talk was a lot more rapt than the audience in one of my typical 100-level world history survey classes with a bunch of freshmen who just woke up and are stoked to finally be out of their parents' houses. But even so, there's something about very long lectures that I can't help feeling indicates an incorrect assumption about how knowledge can be transferred from a teacher to students or from a high-level leader to lower-level leaders. And given the ongoing frustration that higher-level party bodies usually seem to have with lower-level party bodies' grasp of the party line, uh, much less their ability to apply the party line, throughout the history of international communism, really just about everywhere in the world, across at least the past century of world history, I think I'm probably on to something. Now, over the years, I've interviewed people who have sat through any number of these sorts of speeches, you know, from a number of different parties around the world whose experience spans the second half of the 20th century and even into this century. And I'm always amazed that they treat this sort of thing as just how it's done. Uh, I don't think I could sit through it myself. And to be clear, we're talking about uninterrupted speech here, not something with questioning and discussion coming from the audience. Uh, anyways, that's my two cents about just the length of this talk. Um, okay, so with that said, let's dig into the actual content of what Bukharin said. The speech was divided into six parts. They were the situation of the international revolution, the worldwide significance of the Chinese revolution, the nature and the future of the Chinese revolution, experience of past struggle, 
present stage of the Chinese revolutionary movement and the general line of the Chinese Communist Party. The first section of the speech, the one titled The Situation of the International Revolution, previews a major concept that's going to be introduced to the world immediately following the Chinese Party Congress. At the 6th Congress of the Communist International, which begins in Moscow on July 17, 1928, so just six days after the Chinese Party Congress ended, the thesis is going to be put forward that the world is entering what was called a third period of revolutionary development following the 1917 Russian Revolution. At the Comintern Congress, the significance of the idea that the global revolutionary movement was entering a new third period was that the global revolutionary movement was on an upswing and so more radical action was called for than had been the case in the recent past. This was highly significant for communist parties around the world and in many countries, including the United States, it served as kind of a spur to more radical activity and helped the local parties to shake off for at least a short time some of the really not very radical people who had been contending for leadership in those parties. Uh, for example, in the United States, these new third period policies are associated with some of the most heroic things that communists ever did in the United States, such as organizing sharecroppers in the South, uh, as documented in the oral history of Ned Cobb that is commonly assigned in African-American history classes, uh, All God's Dangers, and also in Robin Kelly's book Hammer and Ho. The application of this thesis to China is going to be somewhat more complicated, as we'll see. After all, one of the main themes going into the Sixth Party Congress is that the party has been too radical, too eager to jump off with armed revolts wherever possible. So we're going to see a simultaneous call to pull back on what the party had been doing, along with trying to implement what turns into a global common term policy change to become more radical. We'll see how this plays out later. Right now, let's talk about the content of this analysis of the three periods of global revolutionary development that Bukharin put forward in his talk to the Chinese Party Congress. So Bukharin defined what he called the first period of the development of the world revolution as, quote, the urgent revolutionary crises that occurred in many countries. First and foremost among all the countries of Europe were the two revolutions in Russia, both victorious revolutions that resulted from the seizure of political power by the working classes. In addition, there were the German Revolution, the Austro-Hungarian Revolutions, the repeated attempts of the German working class to widen the revolution and seize political power, and there were the revolutionary eruptions in Italy, the organization of Soviet republics in Hungary and in many other smaller countries, and so on. The manifestations of this profound revolutionary crisis were the direct attacks by the masses, armed hostilities between the working class and the bourgeoisie on the European continent, and large-scale peasant uprisings in many countries, e.g. in Hungary, Romania, parts of Poland, etc., Overall, the revolutionary crisis was a defeat for the working class. The working class was defeated because first among, all, first, among all the workers' movements of Western Europe, there was no close solidarity and no organization of a sound communist party. And in many countries, there were only scattered communist cells. Perhaps this was because the majority of the Western European working class was still under the influence of the reformism of the social democratic parties. The second reason is ultimately linked to the first. 
the defeat of the working class was extremely significant, especially in the following countries. In Germany, for example, all the finest elements of the working class took up arms and thrust themselves into the midst of battles. They suffered bloody defeat and lost their best core elements. And they lost such great leaders of the workers' movement as Luxembourg, Liebknecht, and many others. And the working class suffered bloody defeat. As the working class suffered bloody defeat, the bourgeoisie was able, to a certain extent, to once again begin a new future of capitalist development. And it permitted capitalism and the entire capitalist structure to enter a new period of development. The defeat of the working class, therefore, was precisely the starting point of the new period of capitalism. End quote. After this, uh, Bukharin moved on to discuss a second period that set in around 1922 or so, which he describes as being characterized by the partial stability of the capitalist economy. Here's how he characterized this period. After the defeat of the working class, the bourgeoisie constantly utilized new, or new, new ways or new means, the occurrence of fascism in Italy, for example, to begin the consolidation of its own capitalist economy, which had disintegrated during the first period. We can see that economic relations were smashed to bits during the first period after the World War. The tremendous disintegration of the economy, the falling into absolute poverty of many countries, the utter exhaustion of the productive forces, the extraordinary chaos in the finance and currency systems. In short, all economic activity had already disintegrated. After the defeat of the working class, and after the political power of the bourgeoisie had been consolidated somewhat, the economic recovery of capitalism was very limited. The bourgeoisie expended a great deal of energy and finally began to bring about the recovery of the flow of currency and the credit system. Moreover, it began to refit somewhat its enterprises with new equipment. It took advantage of the distressed state of the working class, using all its strength to exploit the working class in order to wring unprecedented large-scale profits from the working class, and it used most of this profit to change the equipment in its enterprises. The so-called transformation of the equipment in enterprises was simply the changing over to the use of new production tools in enterprises. But the changeover to the use of new production tools further necessitated new methods of labor organization to make the workers work harder than before. And then the many conditions that the workers won in the earlier struggle were all wiped out. Therefore, due to the utter exploitation of the working class, due to the wiping out of the conditions achieved by the working class during its earlier victory, due to the compelling of the working class to work harder and more slavishly than before, the bourgeoisie began to occupy a higher base from which to carry forward its capitalist production. During this period, there were a number of new inventions, the majority of which were wartime inventions in chemistry, electrical science, and many other technological fields. At this time, they were all applied to the transformation and improvement of the, of the capitalist economies. Therefore, for all these reasons, capitalism eventually enhanced its own economies. If we discuss not merely Western Europe, but simultaneously look at the capitalist economies throughout the whole world, then we come to realize that capitalism rescued itself from the conditions of great chaos after the Great War, that first it restored the productive forces of its own economies to their pre-war level and later surpassed the pre-war scale. And that is not all. We can say in addition that in the technological sector, capitalism was finally able to advance a considerable number of technological revolutions and greatly alter industry and its productive organizations. Moreover, it simultaneously created great enterprises that did not exist before the war. 
that is, such monstrosities as syndicates, trusts, and united banks, and others. End quote. This stabilization, however, revitalized the economies of the imperialist countries, and now these countries were competing with each other ever more aggressively for markets. And Bukharin saw this as leading both to inter-imperialist war in the near future and, along with this prospect for inter-imperialist war, also the possibility for revolutionary movements to take advantage of those conditions and seize power, just as happened in Russia during World War I. And so this period of increased inter-imperialist contention signified the onset of a new third period, which called for more radical communist activity than during the period of relative stabilization of global capitalism. Here's how Bukharin described it. Quote, if the second period can be termed a stage of partial capitalist stability that was both reborn from and consolidated after the great storm of 1918 to 1922, that produced new links that prolonged the period of economic relations, then the third period is first and foremost the stage during which the old and leftover contradictions and the newly arisen contradictions of capitalism are developing and expanding in unison. Day by day, the relations between the Soviet Union and the capitalist countries are deteriorating and becoming more aggravated. The capitalist world has to seek new markets, while at the same time it has to wipe out the danger of socialism, which is manifest in the existence of the Soviet Union. Therefore, every country, striving for first place and dreading to fall behind, madly arms itself. There are many attempts to surround the Soviet Union. Of course, the danger of war only increases. The relationships between imperialist countries and colonial areas are also growing more tense. Chinese comrades have personally had a taste of this, so they understand it very clearly. The relations between all countries, not just between the Soviet Union and every capitalist country, but between all the capitalist countries, are also becoming more and more tense. I'll give you an example. Anglo-U.S. relations. Some time ago, most of our own knowledgeable comrades and perceptive economists still said that the two countries work together. But now all are extremely clear about it. England and the United States have become mortal enemies. Most recently, we have seen within Europe that the relations among all classes have also become exacerbated because in the footsteps of the prolonged stability of capitalism, the squeeze is being put on the working class with increasing ferocity. During the second period of the development of the international workers' movement, the position of the working class, because it had just been defeated, was one of extreme hardship, so it had no strength to resist. Nevertheless, it gradually regained some of its strength after the Great War. It revitalized itself anew, or, to put it more accurately, it began to revitalize its own rank and file. At that time, the capitalists wanted to attack it again. The working class, of course, had to resist them, and thereupon the working class became leftist and revolutionized. And with that, the strength of the communist parties increased, whereupon the class struggle also intensified. This, then, is the third period in the advance of the international revolution. The nature of the third stage is manifested in the colonial areas, first and foremost, by China's great revolution and imperialism's wars against China's great revolution. In Europe, it is the revolutionization of the worker masses and the danger of war against the Soviet Union by every imperialist country. This period has also foreshadowed anew the greatest historical catastrophe. Between labor and capital, between the imperialist countries and the Soviet Union, there is about to be a tremendous struggle. 
The present situation is at this very minute developing into a great class struggle, a defiant resistance on a worldwide scale by the oppressed masses of the proletariat and the colonial areas. Such a great struggle is unprecedented in the history of mankind. There is no precedent for it in the history of the entire world. End quote. So just a few comments here. One of the reasons I wanted to read all this out from Bukharin's speech is that this way you can get a firsthand sense of the sort of reasoning that went into formulating common turn policies. One thing that stands out to me here is the way in which really short-term changes in economic growth, industrial change, and technological advancements were scrutinized by the Soviet leadership and how their analysis of appropriate revolutionary strategies and possibilities were affected very directly by these short-term changes. On the one hand, I think one potential strength of this approach, and, and I think that this uh, was why the Soviet leaders did this, was that it was a way of being poised to seize on whatever opportunities presented themselves. And there was a sense in which they wanted to be ready to pivot as quickly as possible to meet the demands of the objective situation. Um, but a, a real weakness of this approach is, I think, shown here when we see comments like, for example, in what we just read about how, quote, now all are extremely clear about it, England and the United States have become mortal enemies, end quote. Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, um, uh, this is clearly a ridiculous statement, and it really didn't take too long for that to become clear. There was a real weakness in seeing the competition for markets between imperialist powers as translating in a one-to-one -one way into, a more into more aggressive forms of imperialist rivalry. Um, but this is how the Comintern was formulating its policies at the time. Bukharin had actually first put forward this thesis about the world revolutionary movement entering a third period back at the seventh plenum of the executive committee of the Comintern at the end of 1926. It somewhat countered what had been and, and what would become again the dominant economic thinking of the Comintern, which was articulated by the Hungarian economist Eugen Varga, which was basically that capitalism was caught in a general crisis that would only continue getting worse and then finally it would be overthrown. Uh, Bukharin's ideas about both the possibility of renewed capitalist growth and how that growth itself would lead to further competition, war, and crisis among the imperialist powers uh, better captured the actual dynamics of capitalist development than Vargas' ideas, uh, even if the particulars of Bukharin's analysis were a bit lacking, as in the example about U.S.-British rivalry I just mentioned a minute ago. When the Depression hit, that ended up being that ended up giving a big boost to Varga's ideas about a general crisis of capitalism, and it didn't help that Bukharin had decisively lost his struggle with Stalin by that point. Um, despite the reversal of the Comintern's commitment to the theoretical underpinnings of the idea of a third period of the world revolutionary movement, the radical third period policies would not be revised until the middle of the mid 1930s. Now, we'll get more into what happens with the Chinese party in the near future, but I do want to preview things here because I think if you're paying attention, you can see where things are going. The 6th Congress of the Chinese party, as we discussed last episode, had been called in large part in order to end what came to be called blind actionism, the policy of launching armed struggles whenever and wherever it was remotely feasible. However, uh, the policy shift that the Comintern was undergoing called for all communist parties everywhere to push as hard as possible in a radical direction to take advantage of what were seen as the emerging favorable conditions for world revolution. 
Thus, what we're going to see is Choo Choo Bai getting blamed for all the bad things that he had done, which were inappropriate to the situation in China, and then a new leadership being put in place, which is going to be tasked with carrying out policies largely similar to those that Choo Choo Bai had been pushing for. Uh, this new policy is going to end up being called the Li Li San Line, uh, and we'll have ample opportunity to discuss it in the upcoming podcast episodes. Um, this situation is going to result in some fairly catty exchanges between Chu Chu Bai and Bukharin uh, at both the Chinese Party Congress and at the Sixth Comintern Congress, where Chu will repeatedly call into question whether there is any difference between the second and third periods, essentially being the only person in the room who's willing to say it out loud. Uh, but clearly a lot of Chinese communists had to have agreed with him. And from the standpoint of China, uh, it's hard to fault them for that. All right, we'll dig further into Bukharin's talk at the Sixth Party Congress next episode. <laughs> <laughs>